Keep your Bibles open at that section that we've just read together. We're coming reluctantly to the end of John's gospel. Uh, I haven't preached as many sermons as Dr. Boyce did, uh, but I've nearly made a hundred. I'm only in 98. I'm trying to think, is there a way in which I could get another two out of it just to make the round figure? And you never know what's going to happen. I have one or two ideas that that are percolating in my mind. Uh, by way of summing up some of the themes of John's gospel, and then we'll be done with it, and we'll move on to the book of Daniel, just let you know that's where we're going. Anyway, the the interesting thing about these last verses is that they seem, in many ways, to, to depart from the style in which John has been unfolding the story of Jesus. We're interested, of course, in them because they tell us something about what was going on in those few weeks in which the Lord was appearing to the disciples before He went up into heaven. And we're even more interested because of the characters of Peter, Peter who has been this kind of energetic, aggressive, pushing individual, full of his own confidence in himself, and yet so devastating in the fall when he betrays the Lord or denies the Lord three times and so on. That's unfinished business, and we find that dealt with in the preceding passage. But then there's the author, the author of John's gospel who has disguised himself, who has kept his name from us right through this book and still keeps his name from us. He has referred to himself obliquely as the disciple that Jesus loved. Well, he loved all the disciples. We're told he loved his own that were in the world, and he loved them to the end. But this disciple is conscious that he is one of those who has been loved by Jesus. And so we feel for there to be resolution that there must be an end in relation to his story as well. And that's what we find as we come across the passage. Peter has just been, uh, been restored to fellowship with Jesus. In spite of the fall, Jesus has come to him, and for each denial, of the Lord Jesus, the Lord has given them the opportunity to confess anew His his love for the Lord Jesus. And the Lord has been given the opportunity to reaffirm again and again and again, three times, the, the reinstatement of Peter to the work of the ministry that he's been called to do. And not only that, but in that section we learned that Peter is told how it is that he is going to die. You you may remember the words, uh, verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter has just been told that he is going to be crucified, his hands stretched out. He is going to follow Jesus into a martyr's death. And that's the background when we come to the verses we're reading this evening. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. This is John, uh, obliquely here, and uh, he is following Jesus and he is described as the one 
whom Jesus loved. He's described also as the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So he's identified in two ways. And Peter draws our attention to him. Peter turned and saw this disciple. Throughout the gospel, you, we've been running against both of these men together. When the, the, the tomb was discovered early in the morning, the women went, told Peter and John, and they came to the tomb. John got there first. Peter came and did a nosedive right into the tomb and found out that it was empty. That's the way it's been. Peter and John together. They're a team. They're often together in the Bible. And there isn't, I don't think, in Peter's question, a sense of competition, just simply a recognition that both of these men have an important relationship with the Lord Jesus. He often selected them to be with him in difficult times. And once again, the spotlight falls on this man, a colleague of Peter's, and the emphasis is on the Lord's final words to him. Now, we're told something else significant about John. We are told that he was following them, following Jesus. The disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And that's an important word because at the end of verse 19, Jesus has said to Peter, follow me. After saying to him that he was going to die, he then reinstates him. He goes back to the very first words that he ever said to Peter right at the beginning of their relationship when he came down and saw them and said, follow me, and they came and they followed him. Now, after his reinstatement, now after the restoration of fellowship, there is this recalling, follow me. And immediately, using the same language, we hear that John is following Jesus. That is, following him as a disciple, as well as literally following the two of them as they walk. And we're meant to see here is John's obedience in action. In contrast to Peter's love, which had been uncertain as a result of the denial, here is John quietly getting on with the business of following Jesus. And that's what prompts Peter's question. When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about this man? What does he have in his mind? Well, he has in his mind that the Lord has just told him, you're going to follow me into a martyr's death. With that in his mind, he looks at John, who's been his close friend over all these years with Jesus, and he says, so what about this man? What course will his life take? He's curious about the way of life that will pan out for John, and that's, that's understandable. Not, not many of us, probably none of us, are ever going to get a prophecy telling us how we are going to die or what is going to happen in our future. We don't get to get that information uh, now in this period. And when we see what was to be ahead of Peter, uh, we can understand that he wants to know, can you tell me what's going to happen to him? Well, what's John's scenario? You've told me mine. I'd like to know what's going to happen to him. And we understand, I think, a little bit of what is going on in Peter's mind. We, we often have similar questions. Perhaps we, we look back in retrospect and we ask, I wonder what would have happened if we had done this or, or that. I wonder what would have happened when in our 20s we were living in Canada. What if we stayed in Canada? Would we, 
Where would we be now? What, what, what differences would that have made to our family? Well, one thing it might have made is that they would all be here and not half of them back in the, in the old country. And that would, that would be great. You've no idea how many times that little scenario plays through our mind. Or, or we look at someone else and we think, you know, uh, why is their life easier than my life? Or we look at someone else and we see everything seems to go wrong for them. And we're interested in the way things pan out for people. And Jesus responds to this inquisitiveness, this speculation that, that Peter wants to engage in here is quite decisive. In fact, we, we are meant to learn something quite significant for our ongoing Christian life from this point on, from Jesus, right at this point in the story. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, I want you to see that there's an emphasis here on the power and authority of Jesus. When he says, if it be my will, he's not speaking in vague potential language, supposing it was my will that he should remain, but rather he's saying, I have something in mind for his life. I have willed what's going to happen to this man. The will of Jesus is, Jesus' will and God's will are coextensive. We see a change, by the way, in which Jesus speaks to his disciples post-resurrection from the way in which he speaks to them before. Now, there is almost no hint of the, the, uh, the humanity element. Now, in his glorified, in his glorified body, there, it's as if the humanity now in his deity are so, so fully uh, glorified together that he does not hesitate to speak as God. And here he speaks as God and with God's will. No longer the humbled servant, now the Lord of glory. And in, even in His humanity, emphasizing that He is the one who has planned out the lives of His people. He says it without apology, without ex explanation, without amplification. He, he says it as if they should know by now, after these weeks they've spent with Him in His resurrection state, that He is God and that He is the Lord my Lord and my God, as Thomas had said. He knows the end from the beginning because he planned the end from the beginning. And so, what he does to Peter is he rebukes Peter's futile speculation as to the will of God. Yes, he had told Peter that he would die in order to prove to us that his will is the will of God. He doesn't tell John what's going to happen to him, and he doesn't tell us what's going to happen to us in order that we might trust him. So he makes the prophecy about Peter so that we might know that he knows and has the future in his hands and that it will unfold according to his will. He doesn't tell us what's ahead of us so that we might live trusting him and follow him. Uh, in a trustful and believing way. And you can see that that is precisely how it unfolds. The, the people around him, the people who were there and had heard Jesus speak, uh, recognized that Jesus was making a statement here, but they took it the wrong way. They took it the way we would take it. They took it as a prophecy 
that the beloved disciple, John, would not die. And John immediately dispels that false understanding. He says, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? By the way, urban myths did not start in the 21st century. Urban myths were popular in the church. Even then, there was something going around that somehow or other, John was not going to die until Jesus came back again at the second coming. So, John dispels that urban myth among the disciples and says that what Jesus was really saying is his concern was not about him not dying, but of him remaining or continuing, going on, persevering until the end came, whenever that would be. Peter's destiny was in the God-glorifying significance of his death. He was to die like Jesus, crucified. John's destiny lay in the God-glorifying faithfulness of his life. And that's where we are. We identify with John. John was not given an insight into his future. He was called simply to trust. And God is glorified in your life and mine, not by some spectacular thing that we are destined to do in our lives, but simply in the day-to-day faithfulness of our lives. And in either case, it is the prerogative of Jesus to will and to know all this. For God alone wills and knows how our future lives will unfold. To penetrate into the mind and will of God that is not revealed to us is above our pay grade as creatures. There is an absolute divide between the Creator and the creature, between the infinite and the finite. There is an essential difference of being and time and space. And what Jesus teaches us here is, to His disciples and to us, is that our duty is not to know but to follow, not to get at all what God's going to do in the future, but to go forward into tomorrow to serve and trust and leave it to God. His business is to plan and know and execute His will for us in our lives. The Lord who decreed Peter's path of discipleship and let him know is the same Lord who has determined your way and my way in life, but has not let us know, but rather has said to us, follow me. Now, it's interesting here that once again in this gospel, we are confronted by the inseparable operations of the triune God as God wills one will for the world, for the church, and for the believer. And the great truth is this, that all that concerns the believer is in the hands of the Almighty God. That's what Jesus is teaching. If it is my will, it comes down to the will of God. My life, Peter's life, is in the will of God. John's life is in the will of God. Your life and mine are in the will of God. Our times are in His hands is a phrase that we find throughout Scripture. This idea of everything, these times of my life change and shift, but they change and shift only with the unchanging love of the Lord behind them. They shift 
only according to the purpose of the one in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of a turning. When we talk about my time or my life, we mean the ups and downs, the health or sickness, the poverty or the wealth. But all of those things are in the hand of the Lord who arranges and appoints according to His holy will the length of my days and the darkness of my nights. He appoints the storms and the calm that vary the seasons of my life at various things in His divine appointment. Whether they're times of refreshing or times of depressing, they remain with Him who is both the Lord of time and eternity, and I'm glad that it's so. And not only does He, does he, does he rule, does He will what will happen in my life, but he, he rules and He wills the circumstances of my life, the things that are around the atmosphere of my existence. Even those things are in the hands of this willing Savior who determines and decrees what should happen. And when the Lord Jesus wants to reassure us, you remember how He reassures us. He says in chapter 10 of John's Gospel that you and I are in His hand and therefore, we are absolutely secure. And then a couple of verses later, he says, we are in the Father's hand and therefore are secure, because to be in the Father's hand is to be in Christ's hand, and to be in Christ's hand is to be in the Father's hand. It is to be in this place of absolute safety nestled in the heart of God Himself. And we are, at his, we are absolutely at His disposal. And all our circumstances are arranged by Him in all their details. An old hymn puts it like this, My times are in Thy hand, my God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to Thy care. My times are in Thy hand, whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best may seem to Thee. And I want you this evening to grasp that little phrase from that hymn, my times are in thy hands. That's what Jesus is teaching us here in these words that we've read this evening. If my times are in His hands, then there's nothing left to chance. The events of my life and my career are not cast by some kind of fortune which has no order or purpose to it. Rather, the Bible says, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Chance is a heathen idea that the teaching of the Word of God has demolished. You remember how they took the ark of God in the Old Testament, and they took it captive by the Philistines, and they, the Philistines put, put the ark of the covenant of the Lord in the temple of Dagon, their God. And they went home for tea, and then in the morning they get up after breakfast, and they went into the temple, and there is the ark sitting, and the god Dagon crashed before it. In other words, the Christian belief in the providence of God, in God's rule and direction and will for our lives, has brought chance crashing down like Dagon and broken it into pieces. Blessed is the person who is done with chance who never speaks of luck, but believes that from the least to the greatest, all things are ordained by the Lord. We dare not leave out any event 
either small or great, the, the creeping of the aphid upon the rosebud is as surely arranged by the decree of God as the march of a pestilence through a nation, or the outcome of some great war, or the achievement of some great purpose. It is all in His hands, if I will, Jesus says. And you need to believe that there is nothing, nothing to be omitted from this government of this one. My times are in your hands is an assurance that puts an end to the idea, the grim idea of fate, of compelling all things. You know that idea that people have that, that fate, like an enormous wheel, is constantly moving constantly grinding on, crushing everything that lies in its path, without pausing for pity, without turning aside for mercy. But in the Bible, the good government of God, the providence of God, the will of Christ, if it is a wheel, is more like the wheel we read about in the book of Ezekiel that is full of eyes all around and about. There is nothing that is not known not only nothing that is not known, but nothing that is not determined by God. He works all things out in accordance with His purpose. He works them. Everything is determined by the loving, ruling, reigning, committed, redeeming God. My times are not in a wheel of destiny. My times are in His hands. And when we say, my time are in His hands, and we read the Lord Jesus saying, if it is my will that this or that, I want you to notice that that, that that reveals the condescension of the Lord. Here is the Lord of glory, and here Jesus raised from the dead, demonstrating that, that, that great glory. He has all heaven to worship Him. He has all worlds to govern, and yet it is my times if it is my will that He, Jesus says. In other words, His will, which all the time has to do with the soaring universe in which we find ourselves, down to the very details of the work of, of those most minute specks and atoms, that will that determines all of this is concerned with John, it is concerned with Mary, it's concerned with you, it's concerned with each one of us as His people. It is a very personal will. He, he makes my concerns His concerns. He takes my matters into His hands. The hands that have the stars in place, the hands that hold up everything by the word of His power, those hands have me within them, and His concern is for me. And when He says, if it is my will, it, it makes us realize that, that, that so close are we to Him that all that He is, is available to us. God is near His people with all of His attributes, His wisdom, His power, His faithfulness, His unchangeableness, he is under oath that He will bend all of who He is to the benefit of those who trust Him. He works all things together for the good of those who trust Him. There is nothing in your life 
that is beyond the scope of his concern and attention. If it be my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? My will is the important factor. My will, Jesus says, is the ultimate reality. My will is the all-encompassing purpose and plan that God has for your life. I tell you, there is nothing more wonderful to wake up in the morning and to know that everything of that day, everything of that week, everything for the rest of my life, which as of yesterday is shorter by a year, everything is in the will and plan and purpose of this God. Everything. And He's always caring for His people. So tomorrow morning, child of God, tomorrow morning, don't you go out into the world there, back into the office there, back into your circumstance, and think for one nanosecond that God isn't there. And don't come home from work at night, whether you're coming home to a happy situation or a sad situation, or to an empty place. Don't go home thinking, when I go home there, I'm going to be totally on my own. You are never on your own. And don't go to your bed tomorrow night or even tonight and think that somehow or other you've been orphaned, that you've been abandoned. Or wake up tomorrow morning thinking, feeling lonely or feeling that, that you are absolutely alone in the world because if you're a child of God, you are never alone. Your Father is with you. You see how good it is that God should come so close to us, that He should that He should reassure us by His Word and, and even put things into our mouths and before our eyes and in our hands to remind us of the grace that He has to give to us. Our Lord Jesus is speaking here as the great God when He says to this, these two men, if it is my will, if it is my will. He has a will for John, but he's not telling him. Why? Because he wants John to live by faith. And just as surely as he's revealed the will for Peter, and that will fell out according to his word, so the will that he doesn't tell us will fall out according to his purpose. And we trust him. We go forward trusting him. Well, John heard these things, and John goes on then to testify, to leave his last word in the book. This is the disciple, verse 24, who is bearing witness about these things, and who's written these things, and some other people get in on the act here. We know that his testimony is true. The we are the people gathered around John, adding their little finishing touch to his work. He had left them this gospel as a legacy. They're there to testify that Jesus' words were totally true and utterly unbreakable. John had remained. John had continued in his faith. He had been an eyewitness and ear witness to Jesus, and he had written down this massive gospel for the church. In fact, that word written is very important. It's not just, you know, he wrote it down. The word there is the word normally used of Holy Scripture. He had written this down as Holy Scripture. This was the witness of the apostle for the church. And in the closing remarks, we're reminded of the extent and the limits of the apostolic word. It is not and was never meant to be exhaustive or complete, but it is perfect and inspired. There are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be 
written, I suppose, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We haven't been told all there is to be told about Jesus and His life. John himself has been selective. He's only selected seven signs. Well, they would get more than seven signs in one day. But he selected seven as, a, as an indication to us, as an as a illustration for us of the kind of thing that was going on all the time. And he's explained the significance of them. Peter, Peter died his, the violent death, Jesus predicted. John, John lived to a ripe old age. And in his very old age, having been the minister in Ephesus for some considerable time, and having to preach to, to a very difficult congregation there. In great old age, he is exiled to a savage island in the Mediterranean. Peter was a dramatic kind of figure. John is a reflective figure. <clears throat> He's given us this gospel. He's given us the book of Revelation written while in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And here at the end of the book, we're, we're, I think we're being encouraged not to speculate, not to speculate about ourselves, not to speculate about what may or may not happen in Jesus' life. We've got enough in the books that we've been given. We're to do what Jesus told Peter to do. Follow me. We're to do what John was doing. He was following Jesus. He may determine in His will that you work in business or industry or academia or in the community or in a home or in a prison or collecting the garbage. He may want us to be faithful to Him in a bad job, a difficult area, in poverty or wealth, in sickness or in health. But whatever we find what we are doing and wherever we find ourselves, the great business of the believer is simply to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. I want that to be the word for you this evening. Follow Him. Leave the details to Him. The stuff that you don't need to know, leave to Him. And trust that when you arrive in glory and are given a glory perspective of your life, you will be happy with the choices that He made for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would give us the grace to be the followers of the Lord Jesus. Give us grace to follow our Master and our friend, we pray. In His name, amen.